Welcome to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast. Many thanks for joining us on the Journal of Biophilic Design today. Um, we're really excited to be joined by David Kirkland. He's architect, designer, founder of the practice, um, Kirkland Fraser Moore. Um, he's going to put a link on the journal of biophilicdesign.com. So I encourage everybody to subscribe, go on the website and have a look. Um, there'll also be images of um, some of David's works and, and links as well. David is also a photographer um, and he's founder of D-Lab, which is a design lab which has a summer school and a training programs. Um, for instance, he did a recent um, architecture challenge with his, with his sort of budding architects, aspiring architects, to design a space on Mars, learning how to live on the edge of the possible and also help inspire how we can design our world, really, I suppose, um, here on Earth for the benefit of people, places and planets. Um, his practice covers sustainability, biomimicry and biophilic design, and um, which obviously infuses his home methodology and practice. And I'm actually going to stop there because I'm going to introduce David so um, so he can tell us about what he does. But David, many thanks for joining us, first of all. You're welcome, Vanessa. Nice to be here. Lovely. Um, well, um, obviously, you're, obviously, I've introduced you as, a, uh, as, a, as an architect and also as a photographer. But your photography, uh, again, I'm going to put a link on the journal biophilicdesign.com. But I would say your photography, you know, you have a poet's eye. It's, inc it's incredibly beautiful. And, and there's also that that infuses your own architectural practice. Mm. Um, it's very distinctive. It's very yeah. beautiful, very elegant, lots of light, um, and you know, so very distinctive. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about what got you into um, architecture in the first place, please? Mm, yeah. Um, well, I suppose that has to go back to childhood. Um, so I was born and brought up in a fairly remote part of Zimbabwe. Ah. Yeah, many years ago, um, and. Um, it was, uh, I mean, it was, it was quite a, as a, like to say, sort of a feral upbringing where there were, there were very little boundaries and uh, with that kind of climate, you don't have to wear much and you can go around barefoot. And uh, so it was, it was fairly wild. We were always getting uh, worms, I think, through our feet and things just because we wouldn't listen to grown-ups. But um, I guess part of, part of playing or part of play was, I mean, given that there wasn't really much there, but you had this wilderness, so it was. It was. I guess mm. it was a bit like Eden, really, mm. and you could rummage around in perfect freedom. And um, I guess what we used to do a lot, or I used to do a lot, was um, just making things with with whatever's there. So sticks, mud. Uh, you know, we, we might have a few toys or whatever, but we'd build cities out of muds and mud and rocks, dams, forts. Um, so, so I guess there was always this sort of element of, um, you know, it's not just about making a, a habitat or a little fort. Actually, what happens if there's a few of you, you know, you, you've got a bit of a street going and, you know, you can sort of, well, you've got your cars there on the mud and you're making a dam and then maybe there's a school. And so master planning kind of creeps in. And it's just this um, systemic view of, of creating from essentially dirt and, and, uh, and, and twigs and things and, uh, you know, coming back, uh, many years later to think that that's what we do is basically take dirt and we turn it into things. Uh, but we must always remember that the dirt must return back to being dirt and uh, we should leave it uh, having done a positive, a positive thing in the world in its, in its interim. So yeah. yeah, so ever since then, I guess everyone kind of said, oh, he's gonna be an architect. So I guess I just followed it. Uh, a brief re rebellious period when I was uh, a teenager, I think, like well, who wants to do that? And then of course uh, it all pans out. So yeah, it's, it's definitely, I guess it's in my bones, but I don't think, I mean, you've mentioned that I do these other things as well. Unfortunately, 
the way corporations are run, everything has to be subdivided. But in my head, I don't really, it's not subdivided. It's just one thing, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, do you find your photography informs your practice? I mean, because I know you do a lot of beautiful landscapes and beautiful observational yeah. photography of nature. Do you find that informs your practice? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I mean, to be honest, the, the, the rebellious period was when I um, I didn't quite get into my grades with the UCAS. I didn't quite get into uni. So I thought, right, I'm off. I'm off. I'm going to go and work for the local photographer. And uh, fortunately, my dad said, uh, no, you're not. You're off to uh, find, find a place for you. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess the photography in my teenage years, I sort of dabbled in that a little bit. And I guess it's about light. Mm -hmm. It's, a, it's mm -hmm. just about light, expressing about light. And what does that mean? To human beings and what are the stories we can tell with that and architecture is the same sort of thing so space is is basically the defining things with light mm. um and um i think i can't remember who who, who mentioned it but um someone had a quote that architecture was frozen music oh. so music and photography and art and sculpture and architecture and and just making manufacturing it's all part of to me, it's all part of the same thing. So the, so the, the photography does help me. And I, and I guess I have to say, I do, a lot of people, when I show my photographs, they go, I don't know what that is. Why it's very, you know, what is that? And I think it's, um, it's a very architecturally, uh, um, it's, it, yeah, it's an ar architectural type of eye, which isn't necessarily what good photography is about, because it's sort of quite, can be quite formal. Um, but that's just what we do and, and it works the other way around. So the, the photography influences the architecture as well. So it's fine. It's, it's good. Yeah. I think, I mean, you mentioned there about all, you know, it's about the light. Yeah. Um, same for me. I mean, obviously I'm a photographer too, which is yeah. kind of why, maybe why I see something quite, um, quite different, I suppose, you know, I'm, 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 I'm you know, uh, reflecting on it in a different way to maybe yeah. some other observers. Um, I, I, I think it incredibly beautiful and it resonates with me. Um, but I think you just mentioned light mm. and, and um, I, you know, and so I, I think, as I mentioned to you, really, I, I think if I saw your work anywhere, mm -hmm. I, I would recognise it. It's, um, okay. it's kind of, it's like there's this sort of, it's not a pairing back. There's, mm. um, as I said, I, and the words I can only think of is, is, is beauty and elegance. Um, I mean, some of it I thought was quite brutalist. Some of your sort of yeah, like yeah. Ex expressionist, um, you know, sort of conceptual stuff yeah. as well. Um, and I said, if I think I saw it out of context, I would always, I kind of would feel it. But yeah. there's a lot of things about what, you know, there's a lot of um, um, creations that, that have light that sort of seem to, for yeah. me, that focus on bringing as much natural light in. And yeah. I know, uh, and maybe we could just talk a little bit about that um, from a sort of biophilic point of view, obviously mm. biophilia being one of the main things of mm. bringing natural light in, um, but also why um, your, you know, why sustainability, for instance, is really important to mm. you. Mm. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, sustain I mean, I've always felt naturally, obviously, having been brought up in Africa in the wilderness, that it's just um, life. I think you know, when, when we use the term sustainability, biophilia, biodynamic, biodynamic, um, biomimicry, all, all these uh, sorts of things, basically, they're 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 just describing the foundational thing about what life is, mm -hmm. life with a capital L, and. Um, just to step back into your comments about the photography and the architecture, Brutalist, um, I, I'm, I'm quite interested and passionate about narratives, particularly archetypal, very primitive narratives, which kind of get down to, I guess, being an architect, you want to get down to the foundations of things and then build up. So, 
So uh, yeah, stripping things back down to what is the foundation of something and what are the questions that are asked and what are the stories that are coming from that are just elemental to being human. Mm -hmm. But obviously elemental to being human is, is life. And so how do you make life sort of flourish and abundant and, and, and you, know, uh, you know, I love the story of the, of, of the, Eden, the Eden creation story where there's this sort of, I mean, I don't think it was ever said that it was perfect, but it's, it's, it's sort of, it's good and it works and there's sort of right relationships. And then the, the sort of instruction is to go and, and extend that mm -hmm. into the boundaries of, I guess, who knows what, but, but things that are not like that. So, so uh, if you're going to have flourishing for human life, you know, because it's systemic, you have to know how life is sustained and you better not trample on that or muddy those waters because you're going you're gonna to struggle. And so how do you make that uh, so that humans can thrive, all humans can thrive to the fullness of, of, of you know, of their of their lives but at the same time the rest of of the creation and how do you do that in balance so i guess to me that's sustainability uh and um biophilia is 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 basically asking the question i suppose given our man-made world how we've, we've eliminated so much of the natural world how do we get it back in um and i think the key thing for us is to do is to not view ourselves as separate from nature you know there's there's always this thing about the natural versus the man-made but actually the man-made is just a subset of the natural because you can't escape the boundaries of of of, of nature of, of of the universe um and to recognize that and then to and to sort of realize that you have to work within the grain of that otherwise uh you know you can work against the grain of that but that's not going to promote life that's not going to make life abundant so um you know how do we understand that more and how do we bring that in um, so it's, you know, in our cities, lots of concrete, lots of built up areas, lots of hard things. Um, we just need to learn, uh, find a new way of, of, of bringing these things in, but it's not just, it's not just about the things you can see or the things that we would term naturally life, like plants or air. Um, we should also be aware of things like chemicals. Yeah. I think, um, the word that we use nowadays is the Anthropocene, which is, it's the age that we're in for humans, but I question that and I, I think we should really call it the chemocene because the thing that is making everything different is, is our manipulation at the chemical level of things and how that gets into the environment, every environment, including our bodies, you know, plastics, all these sorts of things, uh, volatile organic compounds, all those sorts of things. Um, so, so uh, you know, if you're going to make a space and people are going to live in it, like we're talking earlier about hospitals and things like that, um, you know, we can bring in light, but how do we, how do we make the space inside a healthy space? Um, that promotes life so whether it's to do with healing or just ordinary things like schools or offices or homes uh, I think there's a st statistic that says the inside of our houses are on average six times more polluted than the outside just mm -hmm. with the stuff that we bring in and we don't realize we're bringing this stuff in on a chemical level mm. yeah it's true isn't it you think um, people don't think about it. I mean, nearly everything is wrapped in plastic for a start yeah. You know your vegetables are wrapped in plastic i mean you know they do leak into your vegetables and, and things you know i mean for years I've, i haven't done that you know i kind of i i just try and stay away from everything that's wrapped in plastic as much as you can but yeah. you know it's pretty difficult as a consumer to actually do that but um and even and even more so if you're trying to design something because you've got to think about budgets yeah. and um you know if you're working for a client you know they've got a they've got a bottom line they've got an idea and you're saying well actually i want to put in you know this natural wood and i want to do that yeah. and it's sustainable and then there's a price attached 
attached to that. So I suppose until, you know, the price tags come down maybe slightly, then it will make it more accessible to people. Or, or maybe if just the options aren't there, maybe there's also the recycling aspect as yeah. well, isn't there? Yeah. You know, things that have off-gassed and things. That's right. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's a long journey. We're all impatient. I mean, we must move faster because it's, it's, mm. it's, it's too slow. And I think the crash in 2008 put us back 10 years on some of these things. Mm. Yeah. Um, but um, I think we have to remain optimistic and we have to, you know, think that we're, you know, it's, 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 it's moving in the right direction. Yeah. Um, you, could, you could sort of say, for example, like coal, when we had coal in the Industrial Revolution, you know, no one would ever think of doing that now. Yeah. And you know, it's just taboo. But yeah. actually, at that time, yeah. it was the thing that helped lift, you know, a large proportion of humanity out of uh, abject poverty and things like that. So, yeah. so it has, sometimes there is a place and time for these things. But then we have to, as humans, recognise when when the time and place is finished, and you know, really, really, we shouldn't be doing that anymore. We should move moving on, and I think that time has come with a lot of the things that we're we're doing at the moment, and uh, you know, hopefully, we're waking up to that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like you know, it's architects like yourself who are kind of like pushing the boundaries and challenging people. Um, you know, because your practice as well is also very philosophical. The way you approach things, you you think. You know, you rationalize something. It's not, you know, I mean, I know a lot of designers, you know, a lot of architects are like that in a way. They kind of have a thing. But I think with your your way of, of doing things, I mean, like as well, we, we spoke as well about um, how you bring technology into, you know, sort of 3D printing, all this kind of all these other different elements yeah. to kind of um, to challenge the way we um, approach the built environment yeah. and our homes and our spaces yeah. and things. Um, I mean, you recently shared um, Jane Benius's principles from the yeah. biomimicry and um, innovation inspired by nature yeah. book. And um, and you, I mean, I'm not going to read all of it, but it says nature runs on sunlight. Mm -hmm. Na nature uses only the energy it needs. Needs mm -hmm. nature fits form to function. Mm -hmm. Nature recycles everything. Nature rewards competition. And you put in this post, which I saw obviously is where this all come from when we were yeah. chatting. Um, but you said if you swap the word nature with building, mm. or you swap the word nature with community, so you know nature runs on sunlight. Well, building runs on sunlight. Community runs on sunlight. Like, you know, nature fits forms. You know, yeah, recycles everything. You know, the building recycles. Everything. Community. I mean, what a challenge. I mean, I, I found that it's such, and that's what really sparks. Actually, yes, what a fantastic set of principles mm. to kind of like design anything about yeah. um i mean obviously it's all about regeneration as well mm. you know yeah. and obviously equity and um things but um i mean can you sort of explain a little bit more about sort of for you why regeneration is important yes well regeneration is well i mean <laughs> having been involved in this sustainability thing for some years um yeah. prior to the crash when everything was heading in the right in the right way I do recall a conference once, and I think it was Michael Braungart from Cradle to Cradle, mm -hmm. who who was 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 sort of having this this uh, the a rant about words and their meanings, and he he really didn't like the word sustainability, oh. and his his story was, um, for example, he said, suppose you were, uh, let's say you had a best friend, and he got married, and you were his best man, um, and then you don't see him for ten years, and then you bump into him 10 years later and, and he'd say, well, how's everything? And he'd say, well, how's the marriage? And the reply is sustainable. <laughs> you would sort of think, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> so so it's, 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 it's sort of the word itself is something that thinks that we, if, we, if we try really hard, we could just manage to just, just sort of try and keep the thing ticking over. And that's not what um, life is about. You go into forest and see an ecosystem, you know, flourishing, it's abundant. It's, you know, and it's dynamic and it's, uh, you know, there's, there's so many words that could use, you know, you need a poet to come and come and do this. Um, but um, 
that's the thing is we need a better word. And at the time, I think at the conference, um, which was in America, I think the Americans stood up and said, yeah, we, we recognize that and we, we, we think we've got the word. And the word is, they were coming up with was betterment. <laughs> and we were going like, okay, I'm not sure that's going to come across the pond to us. Um, so it's so regen regenerative design, I think, is interesting, but it doesn't really, um, it doesn't really cover us. And I'm sure other languages around the world have words that we don't use, and maybe we should start using those or something. But um, regenerative is about making something more than what was there at the beginning. Um, so when, when I said earlier that everything is borrowed dust, <laughs> including us, um, so, you know, we put our hands in the ground, we make something, we can make a brick out of dirt. So the ground is valueless. We, we make a brick, it's square. Suddenly someone's going to give you a pound for it. <laughs> you've, got, you've got a business going. Um, and then you can dream. So you dream and you, you get organized and you build, I don't know, uh, an art gallery, a cathedral, uh, a house or something. Um, and it's just amazing to see that. But, but, the, but the dust will return eventually to, to being dust again. So in that interim period of the borrowed dirt, what is the flourishing that is going to uh, happen? What's the abundant life that's going to happen on all fronts, not just inside a city or human beings, or even for the business person who's commissioned the building, uh, but also for all of life. Um, and, um, you know, we need to, we need to uh, have that as a paradigm in terms of how we approach, how we make the world. Mm. And architects, I think, uh, you know, at the forefront of, of um, the built environment, which is 40% or more of carbon emissions, have a huge ability to sort of put their head in the clouds and their feet on the ground to, to think laterally about how to, um, you know, sort of minimize that. Mm. But um, yeah, so, so it's about life, I think. Yeah, that's really lovely. And I mean, you said the flourishing. I mean, you're just using that word so naturally, actually. Yeah. yeah. And you, I mean, you don't think, yeah, you said about sustainable, sustainability. It does, it does have a kind of limiting, it's just like, oh, we're just ticking along. It's like, it's just it, it fine. Makes, but... It also makes us feel that we, we, we're kind of, you know, we're, we're doing okay sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, the thing, the thing I tried to, so we, we were teaching this, obviously our summer school and trying to get the younger people before they go into university to sort of think already in this manner. That's why we went across the Mars, get them to think about, you know the impossible because there's nothing there you can't how are you going to do it and never mind that how are you going to keep five people sane for two years you know and you need you talked about a photograph in a hospital that helps healing because it's a natural photograph well yes. you have to think like that and therefore if we're going to think like that there why can't we think that like that here mm -hmm. so um when you design a building the building unfortunately our architectural education makes us think that we're designing this sort of object or this some to some degree sometimes it's a monument and it's a static thing, mm. but actually it's not. That's not what we're designing. We're not designing static things because a static thing is always dead. Yeah. We're designing a catalyst. That's what we're doing. We're, this is a catalyst in a community to, to bring together things, a flow of things, flow of energy, of people, of life, of, of, of culture, of whatever. Mm. Um, and, and this is just a different paradigm way of thinking. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's really it's a, it's a um, intelligent way of putting it, as well as a very spiritual. And I mean, I mentioned about your work being poetic, but actually, but there is. I think there's. I think we should have more beauty yeah. and more awe in our built environment. Awe is a good our, word. Very good. Yeah. Um. You know, because it. You know, I think it does. It does create that within us. I mean, we yeah. do. You know, we, um. That and a respect, respect for the planet, and respect. And I think, and I, you know, I don't make a secret of it. One of my sort of dreams is really to, if I, you know, if we can persuade as many people as possible to bring biophilia or biophilic design principles. Who says we're going to fingers like with inverted commas in the yeah. air? 
um, and um, but if we can bring more of that actually into the built environment and people are surrounded by yes. you know, plants and trees and but natural light and air and sound and haptic you know the sort of like the touch all the sort of tactile nature of things and the yes. color ways and color schemes it's just going to have it's going to by default it's going to embed in their brain somehow that they will have a, a more inherent um all, all sort of pervasive respect for nature and therefore with their purchasing choice choices and um lifestyle choices on on so many levels you know yeah. so but, it, but it's, uh, it's not just um you having the respect for nature i think the nature is because we're part of nature uh, our lives can't be fully flourishing unless we're connected to it. So during the, the lockdown, the first, um, well, last year, really, yeah. um, you know, dawn on us, you know, for those of us that live, we do live in a sort of a rural area. And yeah. the one thing that we, we could do is we could go out for walks yeah. and, and, and just be part of nature. And then you see on TV, you know, sort of a family of, of six living in a two bedroom apartment, sort of eight stories up, no parks or anything near, near them. Um, so there's there's you know there's different types of poverty and there, there, there's a thing there's a thing called spatial poverty or even nat nature poverty and all of those things space and nature you know are also needed as well as bread and warmth and clothes and security all those sorts of things so you know we we, we really need to bear that in mind because um you know how can anyone flourish if they may have all the money in the world but if you're locked up in a tower like that you, you you're not going to flourish no exactly it's criminal i think actually mm. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think you should have, we should have parks everywhere. I think yeah. there should be more greenery so people can get out and, and, and breathe as well. Yeah, and there's the health that's element too, isn't there? So, um, and maybe we could talk a little bit about um, so a couple of your projects, you know, sure. so that listeners and, and watchers can, people, you know, can get an idea of, of um, things that you've done. And again, people are listening. I'm going to put on the journal by flickdesign.com some links and some images to your work. Um, so I encourage people to subscribe as well. So uh, I always forget to ask people to do that. So <laughs> there's my little plug. Um, I mean, maybe we could start with schools. I mean, the education um, side of things. Um, as I said, I know what we spoke about, about letting a lot of light in mm. and obviously education and study, having a lot of natural light they've proven that you know people study better and they focus better and you know they absorb information yeah. better as well um i mean can you explain you know is it obviously it's a conscious decision when we obviously you've expressed that um to bring in a lot of natural light and um, but what other what other features do you aim to bring in particularly in education maybe or anywhere well, else yes i mean we 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 have been involved in some some education projects including master planning uh, for some yeah. schools yeah. Um, and when we first entered the, the sort of project or got introduced to the, to, the, to the school to help them with something, it was usually around something quite small, like uh, maybe a little extension here or mm -hmm. something quite modest. And, um, you know, unfortunately, they would ask our opinion. What do you think? Do you think we should do this? And we would say, well, I think there's a lot more other things you need to sort of get your head around first before you think about doing something like that, tweaking at the edges. Um, so we would encourage them to sort of do a master plan, a strategic master plan about how they use their space. So there's a long term sort of program there for 15 or 20 years about how the school's been used. Um, and in fact, one local school that we, we worked on, uh, they needed more space. But then when we brought our team on board, um, you know, and including a curriculum analysis mm -hmm. who came in and, and actually said, you don't need any more space. You just need to rejig your your uh, your curriculum properly. So, you know, actually doing yourself without a building, you know, which is doing without a project for us, but that's that's the way you have to do it. But but all the different things that when you are master planning the things, what are the key things that make for good academic performance and help young people grow? Um, and so we did some digging around and some research and what those things might be, because we, we know that there are things like lights, views, um, 
uh, you know, all these sorts of things, which are or plants or whatever greenery, and they are essential, absolutely essential. They're foundational. But actually, when you look at the analysis of what um, affects academic performance most, one of the things that struck me was actually it was the distance between classes. When you when you change from one class to the other, mm. the amount of time it takes you to get to the next class. Within a certain distance beyond that, there's a chance for disruption. Yeah. Shall we say uh, a little bit of uh, pushing and shoving yeah. as you go, yeah. and and that can be unsettling for the next class for the, for the person too. So you know those are sort of, sorts of things that mm. are also have to be also have to be included. Mm. Um, so I know you talk about uh, classrooms, but but it doesn't matter what environment we're in where we we're spending a lot a lot, a lot of time there particularly offices or something like that where we were trying to do a job of work and, and concentrate quite heavily um, some time ago in the in the early 2000s we had a software program that we were developing for um, sustainability for architecture and we were talking to um, Vivian Loftnest who was um, professor at Carnegie Mellon and she had an amazing tool which was for officers which she was wondering what to do with and they'd done all this data uh, analysis and had all these peer-reviewed papers uh, from around the world about the effects of, say, daylight, uh, fresh air, views, plants inside an office space. And they aggregated them all into a tool that allowed uh, a developer just to sort of see what's his return on investment. If he, if he spends a little bit of money in this, what's he going to get in return? And one of the striking things was because it was a it was a whole life analysis of an office building. So mm -hmm. over 25 years, the whole the total cost of the whole building, um, and that includes the construction. But also, she included the the um, the salaries, okay, was the overhead. So the total yeah. overhead. Uh, and so the building cost, I think, was something over 25 years, was something like four percent. Was 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 nothing. Yeah. Uh, absenteeism, and bear in mind this was the US. Absenteeism, I think, was was something like uh, I can't remember if it was like twelve or fourteen percent. Mm. So, with her metrics that she had for how each of these things could make a healthy environment and reduce absenteeism, when it was all aggregated, if you if you put them all in the pot, which was probably going to cost another I don't know point one of a percent to the building, so four point one percent, but it actually reduced absenteeism down to about seven percent. That's crazy. So. The value there is phenomenal yeah, it is. Uh, just by these small tweaks. And that's the kind of thing that we need to, we need to have those kind of tools to help us design schools and mm -hmm. um, offices and homes and things. Yeah, absolutely. And as you say, it helps get things over the line, doesn't it? It helps yeah, yeah. educate people. I mean, unless you know, I mean, you know, and not rather do that, you know, you know, you understand it, you've seen it, you've witnessed yeah. it, you kind of know. But actually having things like that where you can use it as a really accessible tool that you can, yeah. you know, demonstrate to people, you know, the the, the the people who've got the purse strings really, or the people who are commissioning. So, people. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So it's the purse strings. So the reason for this yeah. tool is to show value in terms of yeah. you, you know, if you've got the the person who's who's paying for it, you need to talk them yeah. money. <laughs> and you have to show how you're gonna save money. And and of course you will save money if you start working in the grain of nature. It's just inevitable. That's that's lovely. I love that. I love that phrase. <laughs> See, I yeah. told you you're a poet. <laughs> so you have these have these phrases, like you know, um, yeah. So obviously we spoke about about that, and um, you, I mean, you have worked on the Eden Project as well, didn't you? I mean, that was a while ago, um, and it is a beautiful space. Can you, can you maybe could you tell us a little bit about how you know that project? Yeah, um, it was 
yeah, it was an interesting project. We, I mean, uh, you know, I worked for a different company, Grimshaw Architects at the time. And, yeah. um, you know, we were quite tickled when, when Tim Smith walked off the street into us and said, you know, you're the people to build uh, my project and I'm, I, I need the eighth one of the world. And, uh, oh, but I've only got like 5,000 pounds. <laughs> um, so how, how do you do that? And we, of course, we rushed ahead to sort of um, design what we thought would, would, was adequate. But um, it was quite a difficult uh, project because he didn't own the land. Yeah. And we would design this lovely building. But actually, even though we'd agreed where there would be mining or not mining because it was a clay mine, you'd go down there uh, sort of four, four weeks later having designed your building and, and realise your building is like 20 metres in the air. <laughs> they, 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 they didn't uh, stick to where they said they would mine. And, you know, the, the ground's moving all the time. So normally the thing an architect can rely on is if you, the ground's going to stay still until you instruct someone to move the ground. But in this case, the ground was moving all the time and it was impossible to design um, a building really in that sort of, um, because unless the building was designed and priced, they wouldn't get the funding. Mm -hmm. It was all back to front. Yeah. Um, so the solution was really looking again at nature, um, biomimicry, at things like how would nature do this? How do you make minimal surfaces so that it's cheap? So you can build it for as 5,000 pounds. Um, how do you get all these uh, this huge these huge components up a small lane in Cornwall? You know how do you how do you do these things? How do you maximise the sunlight so that you, you can reduce the amount of energy that's needed to heat the space? So you know uh, nature does it in a, in a wonderful way. Bubbles, you know, is a very minimal surface. Um, and the thing with the bubble is you can subdivide it very easily into a grid of standard small components, which are easily transportable. Ah, oh, okay. So the idea was then if you push, if you, if you build your building out of bubbles and put them all together, and then you push the bubbles into the ground, um, you, you, that's it, you've designed the building. Now, if the ground changes up or down, all it's doing is, is moving across the sphere of the bubble. And so you will just add a few more components or reduce the components, but it means you can carry on designing the whole thing. So it's just, it's almost an evolutionary process of design where it, the design finds itself. It, mm. it emerges just mm. by, uh, by respecting the constraints and working with the constraints. And I think that's how nature works. Mm. How does nature do something so amazingly beautiful and extremely parsimonious because it's always efficient? Um, well, if we could copy that, which is what the biomimeticists are wanting to do, um, then you know we're, we're heading in the right direction. But the, but the thing with biomimicry, though, is I, I, whilst it's interesting talking about form and structure and materials and different types of fabric and all that sort of stuff, the thing that fascinates me more is the algorithm, mm -hmm. which is process. Okay. How does that evolutionary process work? Mm -hmm. And um, how does it become so finely tuned when you have things? And, and how, how do these things live in such a, a community, you know, an ecosystem? Because that's how they all work. They flourish. If you look at, um, uh, you know, um, trees or, or, or funguses, all those sorts of things, how they're part of this dynamic web of life. Um, how does that or how does that emerge? And it's, it's an evolutionary process. So I believe, you know, that's that's our kind of architectural approach is, is not to be prescriptive from the beginning and just try and not run away from the problems. So usually with a, with a project, you, you'd have assets and you have liabilities across across the table that you have to contend with. Um, what we try and do is we try and move the liabilities across to become assets and they kind of inform form the building and you get a much richer building than you could have dreamt up if we put a, a beret in a, on our head and had a 2B pencil and sort of sketched up something. Um, so we just, we kind of try and let it happen. And, and, and 
you, you, you're trying to listen to all the stakeholders. It's not just about the clients, it's about the local community. It's about the local environment. It's about um, you know, ecology. It's about all these things. Uh, if you're in a city, the ecology might be, you know, it needs to have a, a symbolism. It has to have meaning. Yeah. All these things, you put them in the pot and the building will, will find, its, find, its, find its place. Yeah. But then you have to you have to know technically how you're going to actually build that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, you, you need to have the expertise yeah, as do. well. So. <laughs> um, on your on your website, you have these things called para houses. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you sort of explain the idea and concept behind those, please? Yes. Um, well, pa para means paragraph. So in the in the planning um, policy documents, there's there's a paragraph there, which is a small. Um, a few words, um, paragraph, but incredibly powerful. Um, and it's been around since John Gummer. So uh, um, Lord Debnam, I think his name is now, um, he, he started about 25, 30 years ago, maybe. And it was something called um, Para, no, it, was, it had various names and it's had various iterations. So the last iterations have been, it was paragraph 55, then it was paragraph 79, and now it's paragraph 80. And this paragraph is more or less the same as what it's been over the last 20 years. And it's, it's, he, he thought that we need to encourage people and patrons to build houses in the countryside that become cultural assets for future generations okay. in, our, in our country, that define and express who we are and how we live. And we all enjoy going to the National Trust and seeing these amazing buildings, generally historic buildings. Um, and most people obviously don't like the modern buildings, but that is our age. And yeah. so he wanted this clause in the, in the policy documents to be able to encourage people to do that. And it's been quite successful. And in, originally the intention was that the, 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 the measure of it, it's very difficult yeah. because it's quite subjective. And the measure is that it has to be exceptional architecture okay. and, and innovative. Uh, and now it's changed to or innovative. Now innovative has been moved out, but it has to be exceptional so that it, it has a chance to become one of these cultural assets in the future. And of course, the problem is who's the arbiter of that at this time? And as we know, most architectural styles, when we had architectural styles changing over millennia, have always been not welcome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, there's always been a reaction because it's new, it's the new. Yeah. But you know, um, 50 years later, you know, we were all like the 50s architecture now, you know, and the 60s architecture is all coming back, you see. Um, so you, it's, it's a tricky thing because you do have to push forward and you have to pioneer a bit, but at the same time, you know that you're probably going to be contentious. Mm -hmm. um, and it's difficult. What you want to do is get everyone on board with you, as I said before, all the, all the people in the community. Mm. And so generally we try and do that. Generally we're quite successful at that, mm. but we do have occasion where it doesn't matter what you do, no one's going to see it. Um, and someone said, I think recently, some uh, some see, some will see when shown, and some will never see. <laughs> and unfortunately, some, the, some that will never see are the ones that will uh, make sure you don't get planning permission. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I often find they have the loudest voices as well, for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> or the ones that I listen to. Maybe that's, that's something right. more to do with our media dissemination than anything else, really. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe you could um, describe a little bit about, you know, one of one of the or, you know, some of the houses that you have designed. Um, you know, kind of give people a bit of a feel. Yeah. yeah. Um, so gen generally, we, we have a, a grain of how we approach these things, um, because all, with these houses, uh, they're all obviously they're all in the countryside. They have to be isolated. Mm. That's one of the criteria. It must be isolated. Yeah. Um, and um, so they are going to sit in English countryside. Yeah. And 
you know, people do want to see exceptional architecture. They do want to see uh, beautiful things, even if at the time they think it's too modern, but maybe later it will still be beautiful. So when we walk around the English countryside now and we see these beautiful clay tile roofs of historic buildings set in the countryside, it's, it's a very Arcadian sort of view, but we enjoy that. But what we don't want to see is everyone's trampoline, barbecue, uh, you know, cars, all that kind of stuff. Um, so so we, we develop uh, around a courtyard principle Mm -hmm. So we use courtyards, particularly um, courtyards sunken into and houses sunken into the ground so they work with the landscape. So you can't quite tell where the boundary between landscape, nature and ecology and house is. It's just a, it's just a con continuum from outside to, to deep inside. Mm -hmm. um, and that sort of blends with, with, with the natural form of the land and, and nature. Um, but by making um, courtyards, particularly if you suppress them into the ground, you if you're living in the house you can enjoy the house still to 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 whatever you want to do have your have your um trampoline or whatever but from the outside no one's going to see that mm. so it's about understanding the impacts on the wider wider aspect of the of the setting so they're all based around that and um as i said before we we try and you know if we're following an evolutionary process to how design is the design is finding its own its own shape depending on the land also obviously the client's requirements depending on planning and it, it kind of forms itself so they a lot of the buildings are quite organic um, but the problem is how do you build an organic building which is very unstandard in a in a, an economic way mm. and you know at, at the same time we have to put innovation into these buildings to show how we can we can use this as a as a sort of a test bed to try different things that can then can be replicated into more mass-produced houses um, so the thing for us is, is how do you decarbon the whole process, not just the operation of a building. So when people say, oh, it's a zero carbon building, what they mean is it's zero carbon in operation. But, but we should ask the question, what about zero carbon in construction? Yeah. And so, you know, when you take a, a traditional brick, we talked about putting our hands in the ground and making a shape. Well, that's yeah. fine. And we've been doing that for, for 7,000 years. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, only the last few thousand years have we made them hard bricks by putting burning them yeah now we burn them with gas and of course we worry about using the gas and the cost of the gas but you know our thing is well why can't we not use gas why can't we just use raw earth because they're still using that around most of the world and it's perfectly fine so with our houses we try and bring in that kind of thing where we're, we're using um, raw earth all the time and a recent house here and in the in the Chilterns was using just the, just the chalk from the uh, oh. from, from the ground, and we compress that, and we can we can make beautiful things inside, and outside, just mm -hmm. using natural, very one one could say almost primitive materials. But when you combine that with high technology mm -hmm. and various other things, you know you get this amalgam of of, of things which uh, hopefully can point the way. I mean, none of the houses ever uh, achieve a hundred percent of what we're trying to do. But if we can if we can test a few things and achieve a few things so that when we when we are building sort of more volume housing or or, or, or something like that we can actually show people mm. because when you talk about something like this no one ever wants to do it because they're not convinced but if you show people yeah. and then you, you can also show the economic figures as well mm -hmm. everyone goes oh well, that's a good idea yeah. um so um that's what we that's what we're aiming to do yeah, and I suppose as well, using local materials from the earth, yeah. then it's more sustainable anyway, isn't it? Yeah. You know, you don't have to travel, you know, bring yeah. them so far. Yeah, I mean, local local materials, but, you know, when we talk about the original definition of sustainability from Rio um, was uh, um, the triple bottom line, you know, the, the sort of economic, social and ecological balance. And now we want to put justice in there and equity. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, if you're looking at those things, we 
you know, we, we talked about the biomimicry, um, mm. how nature runs on things, but, but the other thing that we, we plug into the brief that we get from clients is that triple bottom line. So when you do something, whether it's thinking about how you're going to construct a wall or how you're going to do X, Y, and Z, or how you're going to form something, you ask the questions, those three questions, how can it improve the ecology? How can it improve things socially, locally, and economically? Mm -hmm. And so we're always going to try and tap into local manufacturers yeah. um, so we can help, you know, increase their business and employment. But mm -hmm. at the same time, um, on a societal level, how do we bring in the local crafts? Yeah. so that um you know there's a there's a local expression so whether we're doing something in the children's here if we did something in iceland it would be different um yeah. but it would be using the same dna shall we say yeah 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 and back to the sort of power idea isn't it like you're saying you know something that um people will go want, want to go back to because it is a thing of their time and um like you say we go to a regency house we go to a stately home and you know often that's made from local stone cotswold stone or whatever it is you know yeah. so there is there is those, those elements yeah. as well our, la our latest um innovation that we're doing now is we were raiding the brick uh the, the local brick guy because we were up there looking at his bricks which are beautiful bricks and he he's one of two people in the world who actually fires his bricks with wood Oh, okay. Yeah. One could argue maybe carbon neutral, but the jury's out. But it's better than gas. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, asking this question about um, why why fire in the first place. So he's also developing, uh, you know, helps us develop these raw earth bricks. But actually, we did notice there was an awful lot of waste in his yard um, because uh, some things misfire, the specification's not quite correct, or the client doesn't want it anymore. And he he tries to shift these, you know, over the years. Of course, when they don't shift, he, he moves them around the yard, and eventually they get moved out and they get crushed for aggregate. Oh. So you get it's, it's yeah. recycled downward. Mm -hmm. um, and we asked the question, well, what about, can't we just take all of that rubbish, yeah. his term, and can't we just build a house out of that? Yeah. Of course, if you said that to anyone, they'd say, well, it's going to look awful. But not if you get a local craftsman. You get the local craftsman who, who, who builds the local flint walls. And we say, right, here's, here's you know, uh, a pallet of tiles, a pallet of broken bricks, blue bricks, red bricks, uh, metric bricks, uh, imperial bricks, Roman bricks, all different colors, make a piece of art. Yeah. And you build, the whole, you build the whole building out of that. Mm. And then in that, you can also put things like bird boxes, bat boxes, places for bees, um, you know, all those sorts of things. And it becomes a thing of beauty. And um, the, the, the uh, inspiration came from Kintsugi, you know, the Kintsugi uh, Japanese art of, of repairing a broken um, ceramic piece with gold. So it's more valuable than the original piece. Yeah. Well, by the time this, this craftsman's finished with this wall, this wall is so beautiful, uh, you know, and he's just taken the local rubbish. So we'll, we'll call it Kintsugi wall. <laughs> I, I love that idea. Um, yeah, and it's saying it's like with you know putting back boxes and bird things. And it just becomes a living piece of beauty, isn't it? Really, yeah. It's it's so so the building. When we talk about the building being a catalyst in the community, it's not just for humans. Yeah. How do we how do we get life to? It's not just about a green roof anymore, or a garden. Yeah. Let's make the whole building uh, a habitat for humans and the rest of nature. Obviously, <laughs> technically, you're designing it so that you're not going to have you know crazy things eating your house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly like your neighbors <laughs> get them out yeah exactly um but it's what's, what's lovely as well you know the concept of what you're doing with the sort of powerhouses is also it's aspirational isn't it you're saying you're showing people so people go i love that i want that how can i do that and so it's just hopefully we'll, it's a whole concept and everything will snowball and inspire yeah. other people um you mentioned you talk about this central courtyard and you build around a courtyard yeah. i've um i did an interview and i've, I've another one to, to to post up yet but it was dr patty um baker mm -hmm. and she specializes in um 
ancient uh, gardens, walled yeah. gardens, so like Pompeii, Herculaneum, and that sort of thing. So we've had a discussion about how they obviously did wall paintings, but they had all the plants in there and the sort of inside outside type thing. And I, I've always wanted, I've got like a design that I've kind of like done on, on the back, back of a, an envelope, as it were, like the design of my house always had this like Roman courtyard thing in the middle, because I think it's yeah. such a lovely idea, because yeah. obviously it's, it, it's protecting that central area, it's private, yeah. um, and it's obviously stopped the wind blowing as well, if you, you know, if you're in a certain, yeah, it's not, it's not a. Um, the rest of the world has always developed courtyard houses for some reason. We don't. We haven't in the UK, and it, it's um, something we really need to bring bring and express it in a, in a unique UK way. But mm -hmm. it's, it's a great thing, particularly if you start building more dense uh, communities, you know, in, in in villages and things. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, I love it. Um, so again, people listening, I'm, I'm going to put some links on the journal of biophilicdesign.com. Um, so I encourage people to go on and find this podcast with, with David Kirkland. And um, yeah, David, if you can send some photographs as well like that, and then we'll, we'll feature those too. Yeah. Um, but um, is there anything else that you'd like to add in particular before I ask you the final, the final question? Is there anything that you, you're burning to, to cover? No, 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 it's fine. I think I think it's been a great conversation. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. Well, I'm, I'm going to get you back. So, um, and we're going to talk about all other things as well. You know, so sort of like, you know, different projects that you're running and sort of you know some of the design work that you're doing and sort of challenges with the, you know, the um the sort of the the younger generation that's coming yeah. up and and stuff and how you stimulate that and um yeah. and sort of encourage the sort of the biophilic side. But um, but the final question that listeners, regular listeners of the podcast know, um, if you could brush the world with this magic brush of biophilia what would it look like <laughs> yes i saw that and I, I was having to think about that and actually i mean it might not be um, the answer you want but but the way i see it it's already painted it's already brushed it's just that no one sees it and we've got to be able to see um and that's the thing as i think you know come and see and that's what we're trying to do in our buildings just come and see um, and whilst it may not be happening in certain places, it, it's um, it's all around us, and we just need to open our eyes into that. And so you, the word you used previously was awe. You know, I think we need to recover that sense of awe. And I don't think you can you can recover it unless you are looking at nature, unless you do are able to see the stars or the, or be in a forest or see plants. You you you're you're devoid of that. We need to find a way of encouraging that in our culture and our community. Um, but at the same time, we, we're also mindful that there are some parts of um, the natural world we don't want. So we don't want COVID. We don't want the viruses. So, you know, we're still the arbiters of what, what comes in and what goes out. Uh, but we should be letting in more than we're we letting in at the moment. But let's just open our eyes. Thank you for listening to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast.